Music to my ears, the podcast that discusses generational wealth and wealth in general. Welcome your host, Stephen Lewis. Welcome to Music to My Heirs. On today's episode, I'm going to respond to a voicemail that I was left by a client's son. Hello, Mr. Lewis. This is TJ. Thank you for your nice comments at my high school graduation dinner. I was just wondering if you have any good financial advice as I begin college. Please let me know. Thanks again. Okay, to answer TJ's question, we've decided to list for you the five financial mistakes to avoid when starting college. Now, to help me out today, I have one of my favorite guests, the author of Live Once, Plan Often, my friend Ann Bucciarelli. Hey, Ann. Hey, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. I know that we both feel pretty passionate about college and making good decisions, and we've had debates about this. (laughs) So... It was Friendly actually kind of, yeah, right. And it was, getting down to five wasn't necessarily too easy, but we've been talking about it. I want you to start off with what would be your number one. You're sitting down with a new college student, your number one piece of advice to avoid a mistake. What mistake would you tell them to avoid? So I, I think the number one mistake to avoid is not setting a budget. And I, you immediately, TJ's going to say, oh my gosh, a budget, <laughs> doom and gloom. Yeah. Um, But I actually think of it as what is my intentional spending? And I think that really sets students up to get a handle of their needs and their wants very early. And then that sets a good track record and a pattern for when you become young and working and everyone thinks they're going to have a lot more money than they actually do. So if you're already budgeting when you're in college, um, it just makes that exercise much easier. And I think that... You know, it's really about knowing your income, your expenses, any investments that you might have. Those are really, to me, the starting points at building a budget. Well, and I know that we've talked before about, like, the difference between looking at a fixed expense versus a variable expense, right? Where, you know, the fixed expense is if you've got rent every month, it's going to be there, right? Right. There's nothing we can do about that. But a variable expense might be... Uh, the amount you spend on groceries or the amount you right? and being able to understand I've got control over some of it and some of it, it's just going to happen, you know, every month. Right. And I think especially with the variable expenses, a lot of times that can include some of the more wants uh, Mm -hmm. rather than needs. So um, in the summer months, some of your needs might increase because you're running the air conditioner, you know, longer if you happen to stay on campus uh, in an apartment, for instance. Um, but some of the wants can also be, you know, I ha- I know that um, I have a lot of friends' birthdays coming up, and that's going to be a lot of nights out uh, or dinners out. And so how can I try to trim back some of the other wants during that time period to stay within my budget? And I think, you know, Steve, you said this the other day, it's, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world if you exceed your budget, but you need to be mindful of it. Mm-hmm. And if you have the budget and you're importantly tracking the budget, then you realize where you've gone out of bounds a little bit and you can try to correct that in subsequent months. And the most important thing is learn from it. Right. If you find that you underestimated or overestimated something, just be mindful of it and try to, you know, try to keep that in mind going forward. Well, and, and I think it's really good practice, too, to know that Part of the art of a budget is knowing that you can take from one category in a particular month. If there's something you really want and you're willing to cut back on eating out or the cost of food or whatever to get it, I love it, right? That's just 
that's art. And, and I think it's okay to do that. I'll just mention, too, that it's, um, there's some really cool technology out there. And I know for uh, a lot of us, we love finding an app or something to do this. I know uh, Pocket Guard, Mint, a lot of those are out there. So I mm-hmm. uh, recommend that they go out and look at some of those things. And if they're great ways to train yourself on how to do a budget. You don't have to come up on your own with all oh, these ideas. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Invest that time somewhere else. Exactly. <laughs> Invest that intellectual capital somewhere else right. because some of those programs are, are absolutely amazing. And they're mobile. Right. So uh, when in doubt, you can check your budget and see where you are before you go out for the night. Right. Exactly. So, look, I'm going to give you my number one because it's interesting when you find out for different individuals when they get their checking account for the first time. This is the time. The big mistake is not having your own checking account Mm -hmm. and still kind of relying on the fact that parents are paying most of the bills. So, one, I say get that checking account. Typically, I want them to look around where they're going to live and see where some of the banks are. Mm-hmm. Because not that dissimilar than a gym, the best bank or the best gym is the one closest to your house a lot of times because you're gonna be able to utilize it well. And I say that because one of the biggest mistakes we find in checking accounts is not understanding the fees. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you that if you go get ATM money from a bar or a gas station, <laughs> you're gonna be pretty disappointed if you really do the math on the fees because I looked up at some of the averages. The average ATM surcharge rose to $2.97, which is a 13-year high. Now, think about that. That is the fee from the ATM at the location. Now, most of the time, the bank also will charge you for using that ATM, which is another $1.72. So think about it. I'm at an out-of-network ATM, not the one at my bank. I'm at $4.69 to get a $20 bill out. I was just going to say, you probably pulled out I probably $20. Did. <laughs> right, because I can't take a 40 or, you know, it's like I'm, I've got to. you're budgeting. I'm budgeting, right? <laughs> so think about how ridiculous it is to think I gave that up for the convenience of getting it right now rather than predicting the money I might need or making sure I get by the bank that I have. So really important yeah. that I've got something I can get to close yeah. and I, I plan around that. And Steve, what are your thoughts on overdrafts? That's a question I get a lot. Right. I think there's been a big misconception that overdraft protection, because, I mean, it's got the word protection in it. We like protection, right? That overdraft protection is this great thing that we should all have. Why wouldn't I have it? For a number of reasons, you shouldn't probably have overdraft protection. This is something the banks have set up. It creates an enormous amount of fees for them. Think about it. If I go out and use an ATM card or a, a debit card to buy something, and there's not enough money, they'll say, don't worry, we'll let the charge go through and we'll protect you, but we're going to charge you a fee. Mm -hmm. You know what we really should have? It should be declined. I'm out of money. So if I haven't done that, now I have overspent on my budget. By the way, they'll cover you for a $7 overage. They'll charge you $30 for the coverage. I mean, it's just crazy. I'm going to tell you, do not take overdraft protection manage your finances. If your ATM card or your debit card doesn't work, that's a good thing. You're out of money. Stop. Right. So get your own checking account, know your fees, and watch out for the overdraft protection. Um, mm-hmm. what's, your, what's your next one? You know, I really think it's making the mistake of not trying to funnel away some savings or some investments. I think, you know, 
for many college students, money is tight. There's not an abundance of money. Um, But there is some, whether it's because you're working a part-time job, which I fully support. Um, Of course, work, work it out with your with your works uh, with your school schedule of course but that's a good way to get some additional pocket change but instead of that being fully uh, discretionary funds to go and spend really start to think about what am, what do I need to spend for my budget but then an important part of that budget we talked about earlier is what am I actually setting aside and saving and investing and when we say saving and investing part of that might be how am I actually investing for the very long future mm-hmm. in terms of you know the scary word retirement? Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it might be I have a trip coming up uh, with my friends this summer, and so I'd like to earn a little bit on that. Um, you know, and and so how am I sort of budgeting and saving towards that? I think what's really scary is that I think we did uh, we looked at some survey information, and, and only fifty two percent of employees between the ages of twenty five and thirty four have even started to save for retirement. And if you kind of extrapolate that back, that means that that was probably started in their earlier years in right. college, right? That they right. weren't saving in college, so it's not in the nature to to save when they're actually working. And so, you know, that's something that we always you know counsel students, even if it feels like it's a small amount. Start to save today. Yeah, I think I think it's it's the habit, right? It's building the habit. You know, I'm, I love the book from year, it's been around over I think a hundred years, The Richest Man in Babylon, mm-hmm. right? And it really gets into the principle of, you know, you want to save ten percent, you want to give ten percent, and you want to live on the eighty percent, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, look, different families have different structures for themselves, but I think it's so important as early as possible, even high school kids. We need to really start saying, are you saving anything for bigger, longer-term, delayed gratification-type purchases? I was blown away. I looked the other day. I found a survey done by GoBankingRates.com, and it was looking at how much money Americans have saved for retirement. And I was really thrown off by the numbers. 33% of Americans have no retirement savings. Another 23 on top of that? have less than 10,000. So we have 56% of the Americans today with less than $10,000 in retirement. Mm. And I I just feel like if they would have gotten the habit started earlier, because we we oftentimes talk about rule of 72, right? Right. Right. This whole idea that if if you can invest money at a 7.2% return, it will double in 10 years. If you invest money that gets a 10% return, it doubles in 7.2 years, right? And and that if if you understand how that can compound out over time, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't need to be a lot. It just needs a lot of time. Right. Right? Right. And and if they would build that habit early, I, I think it would have been a huge yeah. huge win. So And I think one 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 way is when because a lot of these are are five mistakes or things to do are kind of interrelated, I think you know, as you're building the budget, really map out what are the things that I want to save towards. Some of them may be in the nearer term, so that trip that I mentioned, but some of them might be in the not too distant, but somewhat distant future, like buying your first home or 
um, potentially getting married, you know, some of these, you know, maybe five, six year uh, type plans, maybe seven years. And then some, of course, much longer into the future. But I think being able to figure out what your priorities are and start intentionally saving towards them again, just really sets you up to be mindful when you're actually working and avoid the statistic that you just mentioned. Well, and you know that time horizon is the best indicator of how to invest money anyway. So if you right. can figure out the time horizon, you can figure out how to invest it. Right. Right. So what, what's your, what's your next thing on your list? Oh, okay. I can speak to this from, uh, from personal, uh, well now triumph, but a uh, personal learning, which is not understanding credit and mm-hmm. not understanding credit cards. Um, which I think many of us have, have these stories. It's, I would say, listen, it's very good to establish credit. And many times when you're going into college, you don't have a credit card. Um, you don't really have anything that's helped establish credit. So I think that that's a very healthy and it's a very good thing to do. Um, on the other hand, um, credit card companies are smart. Mm-hmm. And the way that they make money is by people not being able to pay off their balance in full. And who is a very likely candidate to not be able to pay off their balance in full? A college student who right. is maybe not working at all or, or, or earning very little through a part-time job. Um, and so I think it's very tempting, and I can speak from personal experience. When I got the phone call that said, we're, hey, we're the blah, blah company, and we want to give you the Loyola University um, credit card, and you've been approved for, I think it was something like a $5,000 credit line, which seemed like, you know, oodles of money at the time. Um once you fall into that trap of living beyond that budget, because mm-hmm. maybe your your debit card rejects you, but you've got that right. you've got that right. green card, that other card that right. you can that you can bring out, it can be very dangerous. So I think um, again, stick to your budget and establishing credit is good, but be mindful of the traps um, be, because it can be very easy to fall into that. And, and they're really good at it. You know, um, they're really good. There's a, there's a great book called Predictably Irrational that really teaches you a lot about the techniques that the credit card companies use against you. And one of the biggest ones, and it drives me crazy when I go in and I see this all the time, is we're going to give you a percentage off this purchase and maybe even a percentage yes. off forever as long as you have our card. Wow, how generous, right? But there's got to be a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And they know that they're creating a habit that's healthy for them, but probably not healthy for the consumer. So you've got to be willing to say, no, I don't need another credit card. No, I don't want to take the 10% discount right, right. now. No, we're not going to do this. Right. And just stick to, I'm going to pay my bill off at the end of the month on one credit card yep. and establish some credit. And, you know, I think it's really tempting to open up more cards, but that actually doesn't help your credit initially. So establishing credit, you need to have, you know, you obviously need to have a credit card and it can be tempting to then get a few of those store cards and you're thinking, well, the more credit I have, the better, right? And eventually, yes, but your credit actually takes a ding every time you go through the process of getting approved for credit. And when you're young, you don't really have that great of a credit history. So it's very possible you're going to get denied as well in the store, which is not a pleasant experience when you're standing at the register ready to purchase something and they tell you you're not approved. Bad on both counts. Bad for your credit and also, you know, emotionally not fun. But, but, you know, uh, um, uh, another thing too, and this is a good point, is that Actually, when when we looked at surveys, a lot of college students actually do pay off their balances in full, which oh, is great, which good. is great. About 72% do. Okay. Um, but that 
leaves a lot that don't. So, you know, just being mindful. I think that's really kind of the point of this entire interview is just be mindful of everything that you're doing. Yeah. I'll tell you, when I went to buy my very first house and I was applying for my mortgage, they said to me, one of your problems is you have too much credit available to you right now. And the mortgage company's not comfortable. You need to start closing these cards. And I'm thinking, what? well, what had happened was the credit card companies kept moving up my available balance. You know, you get that letter and you right. feel so good. We've moved you from 5 to 10. Well, thank right. you very much. Yes. 10 to 20. Thank you even more, right? Yeah. It's actually in their interest again. And you have an overall capacity to borrow and they're eating into it. So you've got to be really mindful of that. So, okay, I'm going to give you my fifth one and my last one. And I'm going to tell you that this is something I really wish somebody would have told me as I went into college. And it's just not understanding how you really build wealth in life. Mm -hmm. I've seen this written around. I've had my own uh, thoughts on it. But I really like this concept of what's the difference between a poor graduate, a average graduate Mm -hmm. and a wealthy graduate so these are great things to take notes on i'm telling you that let me lay out for you the poor graduate is an individual that just buys a lot of stuff not stuff with much value but just a lot of stuff and the money tends to go out as soon as it arrives Mm -hmm. okay the average graduate most graduates will buy liabilities that look like they have value And what I mean by that is it's something that you buy that you think you're done buying, but it starts calling and asking you for more money and more money and more money. Cars aren't really assets. They're liabilities, right? They need gas and oil and tires and they break and all these, right? So you buy these things thinking you're buying something of value, but in reality, you're buying something that's just more of a liability. The wealthy graduates are the ones that learn early that if they can buy some assets along the way, along with their other parts, of it, but buy some assets, which I defined as an asset being anything that can go up and down in value but can't call and ask you for money, mm-hmm. right? If they can buy assets early and just keep accumulating these assets that can generate growth for them over time, they end up being so much better off mm-hmm. down the road than their peers. So... Yeah, but that, you know, that brings to mind, I have a friend who's incredibly interested in art. And when she was in college, she took whatever her, her savings plan was, not all of it, but a portion mm-hmm. of it, and, and bought a really, it was a really cool photograph from an artist that she really liked. Mm-hmm. I was shocked to hear the money that she actually invested in that. It was probably maybe $750 or $1,000, which is a lot of money for for a college student. And, you know, five years later, now this doesn't always happen with art. Mm -hmm. Not only was she enjoying it on her wall, but that artist had really taken off and it appreciated significantly. Now, some art will go the opposite way, but at least, you know, she very early on recognized this is something I'm passionate about. I want to look at it every day. I'm going to budget for it. Um, And actually, it turned out being a good investment. Well, and it's interesting. I've had somebody say, well, well, doesn't it cost you money to insure the art? Okay, yes, I get it, right? There can be some of it, but it's an asset. It can't surprise me with an expense. Uh, a vacation home or second can. Mm-hmm. My house can. I've been surprised more than once by my house calling me and saying, the hot water heater's going out, right? <laughs> right. And, you, and it's today. Right. Right? So, I, I mean, I like to think of investing in 
bonds or stocks or art or real estate as, as taking a dollar and hiring an employee that works for you right. when you're not around. And the more employees I can have working for me when I'm not around that can generate income is a great thing. I just want to accumulate as many of them as I can. That's right. Right? So these are new for a lot of the listeners, but hopefully these are five great things that they can look at and say, I'm going to avoid those. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to make a huge difference in how things turn out for me in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's it for today's episode. Uh, If you found the information useful, please tell everyone you know. There's also information below on our blog, this subject, and other generational wealth topics. Music to My Ears can be found wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Music to My Ears. For more information on this podcast or to ask a question, just email us at stephen.lewis at bernstein.com. Bernstein.com.